Okay, um, my name, as you said, is Stu Gillette. I'm uh, now 72 years old, so I may not be able to remember everything quite as lucidly as I had hoped. I, I was with uh, my partner, Don Jarvis. Uh, we were both detectives in the, in the uh, homicide and robbery section. We responded to uh, a call of a missing person, suspicious circumstances, possible robbery. I, I can't remember exactly how it was classified, but uh, we, we responded as a result of uh, uniformed police officers who uh, worked in that area having responded. I believe it was because of suspicious circumstances. The, the front door to a shop was open. Uh, that sort of sticks in my mind, but uh, I, I may be wrong on that. But we found uh, when we arrived, mid-morning I guess it was, and it was just after the uh, July 1st holiday, it was a, a bridal uh, photography shop. There was supposed to be staff on the premises, but that staff member, i.e. yourself, was uh, MIA. Nobody knew where you were. So that initiated the missing person component of this investigation. And it very, very quickly became a real whodunit. Like, this doesn't really happen a lot. This, this scenario doesn't really play out like that a lot, uh, in my experience at that time. Um, people don't just disappear. A lot of missing persons are, are, they're not missing to them. They know exactly where they are. And uh, they have their reasons for, for doing what they're doing. But this had the earmarks of something else. It didn't, it, it wasn't right. It just, it felt wrong. And uh, so consequently we started with, all right, how do we, how do we find out what happened? So uh, we initially, we had uh, police, other police officers going in and knock on doors and, and interview people as to, you know, if they saw anything. The shop was on uh, Hastings Street in East Vancouver, right on the, uh, right near the border of uh, Vancouver and Burnaby. There is a, a major bus loop just down the street on Hastings westbound. It's a busy area. There's a lot of uh, a lot of people, foot traffic and and vehicular traffic at any given time of day and most evenings. There's there's a lot of traffic there, and very very heavily populated. So we we, we were at a loss really because we tried to find everything that we could possibly think of to enlighten us as to what you know what was going on here in this shop, and it, it just did not appear to be the way that, that a person leaving for the day would leave a shop, right? There was a pair of shoes there. Um, there, was a, there were other things, like there's a little uh, office space off the back and it didn't appear as though it really had been turned over or anything, but there were things that were out of, out of order. So it, it could have been a whole bunch of different things. So the possibilities were, uh, you know, only bounded by our imaginations, right? So. What, what we were facing when we walked in the door was a mystery. What, what you know, police generically refer to as a whodunit. And truly there are, 
there are not a whole lot of whodunits in policing. There's always generally something that tends to help point a, uh, an investigation in a particular direction, and, and you follow from there. Uh, sometimes that, that can lead you in the completely the wrong direction, but uh, in this case, it was, it was like, my goodness, what, what's happened to this person? So then, you know, we're, we're faced with, with the, the situation of, okay, so who knows this person that's not where she's supposed to be? Parents, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, then it's incumbent upon us to try and determine, you know, the last known movements and then work from there. And we were coming up zeros. Testing, testing, one, two, three, stand up eight. Recording number two. Hello, my name is Lenore Rattray. And this is Stand Up Eight, the podcast. The title, Stand Up Eight, mostly comes from a Japanese proverb, Nana Karobi Yaoki. It means fall down seven times, stand up eight. I am not Japanese, but these words spoke to me as Every seven years in my life, something significant has forced me to reset and rebuild. I have now fallen down seven times. And today, I am standing strong-ish. Today, I am ready to share about one of the big fall-downs. And this is episode one of Stand Up 8, part one of three. That's the plan, anyway. As a trigger warning, we will talk about robbery, acts of violence, use of a gun, and a small bit of coarse language. It is July the 3rd. It is Canada Day weekend, and I am celebrating 30 years of surviving at this point. I'm also celebrating the good news that a 13-year-old missing girl from Edmonton has been found and her captor has been arrested. And that is amazing. So today I dedicate this to her. I dedicate it to all of the other silent survivors that I know are out there. Nineteen ninety two was supposed to be my golden year. If you've never heard of it, that's the year you turn the age of your birthday. The golden year is supposed to be the year that you shine, your best year. So for me, I was born on the twenty first of April and in nineteen ninety two I turned twenty one. I just moved to Vancouver and my favorite band was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic. The album was pure magic. The cassette was on constant repeat in my blue 81 cutlass. I could not get enough. 
My favorite shoes were slouchy black high heel boots with pointy toes, you know, rocker boots. And my goal in life was to be a photojournalist. But for now, I worked at Suitors, a photo studio with a retail film development lab in the basement. Digital cameras did not exist back then. You bought your film, took your pictures, wound them into a sealed canister thing, and dropped it off at a place like Suitors for processing. And most of the time, you had to wait at least a day to get your pictures back, and you had to go somewhere to pick them up. And this is where I worked. Standing behind a glass counter, looking friendly, amongst a clutter of framed smiling faces and bright yellow for sale tags. The last day I ever worked there, I did what I always did. I passed the time organizing the printed photos that were ready for pickup. I wiped down the counters that I had already wiped the day before. I tidied the clutter again, and I stood and stared at the window in front of me of the busy street, at cars and pedestrians as they hurried by, and I was never busy. I felt like I was going nowhere. I craved interaction and customers to relieve the boredom, to make me feel human, to take my mind off the sadness of missing home and be my real self. But I wasn't there to be my real self. I, I was there to sell. According to my manager, it was important that these things for sale moved out that door. It was important that I made sure that customers bought more than they came in for. And that rarely happened. I mean, they didn't cover retail sales in journalism school. When someone came in, a small bell above the door would chime, and in they walked, and there I stood. Straight back, pasted smile, friendly greeting. Good morning, good day, hello, whatever. On July the 3rd, at around 11 a.m., a man walked in, surrounded by the worst cloud of stench that I have ever smelled. I smelled him before I could even register his physical presence. He stood in front of me, and he shuffled. He was taller than me. His build was bony. His clothing, particularly his jeans, hung like they were dripping with dirt. He was so dirty. He smiled at me. I forced myself to remember my training. Hello, I said, doing my very best to smile. He said, I'm interested in getting some family photos done. He spoke with some level of formal articulation, which surprised me. He said, of my mother especially. Do you do that kind of thing? He stared and waited for a reply. He seemed nervous. His eyes flicked around the room and again he shifted his body and he watched me. I took a step towards the brochure holder. I answered, we take family portraits. I handed him the brochure. Being close to him, the smell was painful. My eyes burned. He stepped backwards. I did too. And for the next minute or two, which felt like a hundred hours, we both did the customer sales thing where I pointed to the many family portrait examples hanging on the walls. And then he was gone, physically. I saw him turn right towards the bus loop up Hastings. The stench, however, remained. I started gagging, and the only thing I could think was that it was like being forced to stand downwind from a pile of dead, rotten bodies. My manager kept an aerosol can of potpourri-scented spray on the shelf beside the radio, and 
I hated it, and I'd never used it by choice until now. It really didn't help. Soon enough, though, it was lunchtime, and I was hungry, so I guess I'd moved on. I had a homemade sandwich to eat, but could only eat it in the back, windowless photo studio, and never in the front. Customers could never see you eat. So I tucked myself away on a stool, still able to hear the bell and sort of see the door. I heard the chime, and I got up quickly, chewing and swallowing, and it was my dad. His car was parked out front. He was heading home to Calgary and just stopped quickly to pay me back the $20 from dinner last night. I gave him the two-minute tour. His reaction was, not unexpectedly, indifferent. And then he was gone. After that, no one came in for hours. And at the time in my life, I was alone and sad. A lot. I had just moved here two months ago and I missed my old boyfriend. I missed my old life in Calgary. I remember wondering, what was I going to do that night? What could distract me, make me happy? And the door chimes. And there he was again, the man with the smell. He said, Hi again, is Debbie in? Debbie was my manager. He held her card in between his thumb and index finger on his right hand. It looked so bent and dog-eared and worn. I had not given the card to him. Um, no, she's on location today, I said. Can I help you with something? He said, yes, I hope so. I want to find out more about getting some family pictures done. Uh, It's mostly for my mom. She's getting older and she doesn't get out much. Would uh, Debbie be able to come to her house? I said, yes, we'd be happy to help. How much uh, room would Debbie need to set up? Would she travel to Burnaby? Would she charge a travel fee? What was Debbie's experience with large groups? And would she be able to come outside of business hours? He seemed to have a lot of questions. I struggled to breathe. I continued to sell. We could probably fit your whole family in the studio for a portrait session, I suggested. With that, his eyes snapped to attention. His mouth went serious. Where's the studio? He asked. Here, I pointed towards the studio. I opened the door as wide as it would go, and he followed me in. The studio, this room, was bigger, and the ceiling was higher. There were no windows and no back door. He pulled a little notepad out of his back pocket, then fished around for a pen in his front pocket and jotted something down. This is interesting, he said, looking around, and then he left again. Again, I gagged, and again, I sprayed. I was relieved. But this time, I was also confused. At the time, I actually thought that he seemed nice and smart. And yes, he stunk, but he cared about his family, especially his mom. He must be a laborer, I thought. Maybe he worked in some sort of factory. Maybe with his job, he always wears the same clothes, and nobody there cares that he smells. The next few hours at Suitors dragged, and I remained alone. As it got closer to five, I cashed out a little early. It was super easy. I pushed a couple buttons on the cash register, a little piece of paper with a bunch of zeros beside the sales categories popped out, and just the $200 float to account for. I put the cash in a little yellow envelope and stuffed it behind the curtain in the studio. This was our version of a safe. 
I went back to the front and looked up at the clock hanging on the wall behind me. It was 4.56. My back was to the door and the bell chimed. I'm back, he chirped with enthusiasm. I've been thinking about that studio option, he added. I'd really like to see it again. I turned back towards the studio and he followed. He was close. I held my breath. We walked three, possibly four steps into the back room until we were out of sight of the front door and something cold and hard pressed strongly against my cheek. I want the money, he said. He pushed a black nine millimeter into my face. All that came out of my mouth was a sound. A delicate scold of a sound. But in my head, I screamed, what the fuck? So hi, Lenore again. If you made it this far, thank you. After all these years, it honestly continues to baffle me that the first sound out of my mouth with a gun to my head was It has now been 30 years since I survived this and I've just started to publicly tell the story. My side has never been told mostly because I never wanted it to be about him and the ugly details of what happened. Stand Up 8 is not about him. Stand Up 8 is about my experiences with him over those nine days, as well as the impact of the crimes afterwards as I tried for a normal life. I share about my struggles with my mental health over the last 30 years, and I examine whether all of my struggles can be attributed to my time with him. I also talk about trauma and why it took so long to manifest what the key triggers were and how I eventually found my way out. Becoming a mother is a key part of my story. My daughter's surprise arrival in my life blew open all of my vulnerabilities. Stand Up Aid is a love letter to her. It's about owning your past, finding resilience, strength, trust, hope, and purpose. Someday, I hope that she will be strong enough to read about my experiences, and it will make her stronger. For me, Setting this specific story free is just the beginning. To quote the wise words of Maya Angelou, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. In episode two, I continue the conversation with retired homicide detective Stu Gillette. If I could find a positive beam of light in all of this surviving crime crap, it would be my friendship with Stu. Stu and his partner were the first to investigate me as a missing person in Vancouver and, to this day, our bond is so tight. His career in policing spanned over 30 years. He has seen a lot. I interviewed Stu recently at my home as he recovered from COVID and I really don't think we've ever talked one-on-one about this incident in detail like this before, but I guess 30 years is a good time to start. For me, it was incredibly insightful to hear his side, a detective's perspective on crime and real life. I hope you'll join us for a lesson.